You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If you're just doing delivering training that tells people, look out for sender, don't click this, um, you might be meeting regulatory requirements, but you won't be solving the problem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Matthew Connor. He's founder of an organization called Conscientious Security. We're going to be talking about a phishing study he conducted when he was working with F-Secure. All right, Joe, uh, good to be back, first of all. Uh, we took a week off last week, yes. contending to some family business, but yes. uh, glad to be back uh, in the saddle here. Also wanted to share with our listeners that uh, we are kicking off our fifth season of Hacking Humans this week. Isn't so that great? Uh, it is great. Congratulations, we, Dave. Well, thank you. Congratulations to you. I couldn't do thank it without you. you. Of course not. I think uh, together we've uh, we've really done something here. <laughs> four, four years behind us and uh, yeah. and more, more to come. Almost 200 episodes. So thanks to all of you for listening. And, of course, thanks to our sponsors uh, for making it possible. We do appreciate it. We're grateful uh, to both parties. There. We are indeed. All right. Well, let's dig into some stories here this week. Uh, I'm going to start things off. And uh, I saw a press release come by. Uh, actually, the first one I saw came from Microsoft, and that led me to the folks over at the FIDO Alliance. FIDO? Do you know what FIDO stands for? I John? do now, Dave. <laughs> You've asked me this twice before. <laughs> okay. It's Fast Identity Online. That's right. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you go to the next round. That's right. Um, so the FIDO Alliance, uh, it's an organization that um, is really all about authentication. And, and, and an open standard for that authentication. Yes, right? yes. And, and that's what we're going to get to here. So uh, they had a press release that came out on May 5th. Uh, and it says, Apple, Google, and Microsoft commit to expanded support for FIDO standard to accelerate availability of passwordless sign-ins. So this is, I think, good news. And, uh, I would agree. And particular interest to our audience because certainly passwords are something that we talk about a lot, password managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think FIDO is really trying to push us toward uh, a world where passwords are not the number one option right. for logging into things. Uh, yep. And I'm on board. Uh, me too. <laughs> you know, Dave, I think we were on the CyberWire maybe five or six years ago. This is before we started Hacking Humans. Okay. And it was one of the first episodes you and I did together. Yeah. And there was a topic of moving beyond passwords. Mm. And I said, I don't know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, thanks to the FIDO Alliance, we have a very good idea of what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things I wanted to note here. Um, first of all, when you have all three of these names on board, right? You got Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Right. And it's funny, like some of the uh, the side commentary I've seen, it's like, Google's on board, Microsoft's on board. Can you guys believe we got Apple on board? Because like, <laughs> like, Apple, I guess, likes to do things their own way yeah, most of the time. Yeah, so. Apple's not really into standards. But <laughs> right. I think in, in this, uh, I mean, they are into standards. They're into their own standards. Yeah. Uh, and they do a good job with their own standards. They're into standards in their own interest, I guess, right. might be exactly. a way to say it. <laughs> they, they like to have play in their own sandbox. 
Um, So the fact that we have these three big hitters on board with Mm -hmm. this program and they're all they've all committed to expanding it this year. uh, I think that's noteworthy um, because we've seen a lot of standards, you know, for example, uh, some of the uh, pay standards like Apple Pay and Google Pay. And, um, you know, for you still can't walk into every uh, establishment and use those to pay for things. Right. Um, and some places like well, I think Walmart has their own version of that. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's um, – because I asked – I was actually at a Walmart a little mm-hmm. while ago yeah. and asked if they had if they had Google Pay. And the cashier said, no, you have to use the Walmart version. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting a proprietary solution. Yeah. Uh, I mean, granted, <laughs> Google Pay is nothing but a pri- proprietary solution, as is Apple Pay. Yeah. But, you know, it's something – I'm not – I'm not using a solution to shop at one store. Right. Not going to happen. Yeah. I'll go through the hassle of putting my credit card in the machine. Yeah. So what Fido is doing here, what they've managed to do with these providers, and and many others are on board as well, uh, is shifting from a password to what some folks refer to as a pass key. Yes. You know, and how would you describe a pass key, Joe? Well, I mean, it's a public-private key thing here. Mm-hmm. Now, at Last time we talked about the Fido Alliance, we had a listener write in and say, you guys never mentioned Squirrel, mm. which is another passwordless authentication. Uh, but while they're similar, Squirrel works with zero-knowledge proofs. Okay. Uh, and Fido works with a different technology that that uh, lets you create essentially as many keys as you want with a Fido-compliant device. Mm-hmm. But essentially what you're doing is you're building your own private key. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you access a website, and the the name of that domain is part of the algorithm that generates that private key. I see. There's also a secret on the device that nobody else knows that helps you generate the private key. Right. Uh, but once you register your your Fido device, what they have, what the what the company you're logging in with has, is a public key of your data. Yeah. And with as with Squirrel, that's the same thing they have. So if somebody were to break into let's say Google, hack into Google and right. steal your credentials and all they got was a bunch of public keys, it would essentially be useless. I see. I see. So what they're saying they're going to be uh, rolling out over the next or over the course of this year mm-hmm. are a couple of uh, primary things here. One, they're going to allow users to automatically access their FIDO sign-in credentials, which is their pass key right. on, on their devices, even new ones, without having to re-enroll every account. I love this. <laughs> say that. Say that part again. They're going to do what? They're going to be able to access their sign-in credentials uh-huh. on many devices, even new ones, without having to re-enroll every account. So, in other words, you get a new device, right? You don't have to go through it. It'll flow through, right? You by signing on with your FIDO credentials, uh, it'll establish the new device. And you're good to go okay, with all so, of your single sign-on So stuff. the new phone, not the new FIDO device. Correct. Not, like no, if no. I got a new YubiKey, um, and there are other devices out there that use the same thing. If I got yeah. a new YubiKey, I'd still have to enroll that device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But your phone. And I My think, phone, right. I think most people are probably looking forward to using this, or using their mobile device as their passkey. Right. Uh, the, the, the possession of that device to be the thing that is that allows them to get into things. Okay. Um, you know, because I think we see the utility of things like Face ID and Touch ID and the Google equivalents of those mm-hmm. uh, 
just how convenient they are. It, it's a it's a nice blend of convenience and security. Yes, right. It's, I would it agree does with that. hit that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing they're saying here is it's going to enable users to use FIDO authentication on their mobile device to sign into an app or website on a nearby device, regardless of the OS platform or browser that they're running. So uh, I've already seen this in play with um, within the Apple ecosystem, where you can uh, like if you have your mobile device, your mm-hmm. iPhone, or even like your um, uh, your Apple Watch, uh, that can, can serve as a verification system for logging into uh, a desktop Mac or something like that. Okay. So this will handle that automatically and seamlessly. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. But I think adding that so that it's cross-platform, cross-device, Seamless, you know, one right. one system, one standard to rule them all, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, to me, uh, that's really going to go a long way towards trying to push us towards jettisoning, jettisoning passwords, I don't would, you think? I would, I would certainly hope so. Yeah. Uh, it's a much more secure form of authentication. Uh, you know, when I set up an SSH server on my network, yeah. at, where actually, I just put it on the network and our... Network engineer Chris Venghaus says, uh, "Make sure yeah, he gives me an IP address. He does all the setup. I just do the operating system install." Right. One of the things that's our policy is that um, if it's going to be remotely publicly accessible, or even on a network where publicly accessible stuff happens, you can't use password login. You have to use public-private key authentication. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's what this is. Mm-hmm. And the reason we do that is because. Somebody has to get a hold of your private keys. They have to they have to violate all the stuff to get into 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 the private keys and get that. Now that's going to be the next attack vector for social engineering, though. Mm. People are going to be trying to do that. But with a hardware key like a YubiKey or a Google Titan or some other key built on the standard, I don't know how you do it because you never really the user never really knows what the key is. Mm-hmm. It's just a secret on a device that has no user interface aside from a little button that you touch. Yeah. Uh, and now YubiKey is coming out with one that's actually got a biometric on it. Yeah. So now you can't have somebody else do it unless they've uh, collected a finger from you or something. <laughs> right, right. But like well, I say, there's no such thing as a perfectly secure system. Yeah, and for example, like I'm most familiar with Apple's system on, on iPhones, you know, right. and they have the secure enclave in there. Mm-hmm. And that's as its own little, little set, walled-off section of hardware yep. that performs the scan – uh, checks that you are who you say you are, and then all it does is it passes over to the OS. Yeah, we're good here. Right. This, is, this is that person. Yep. But the OS doesn't have access to the secret key. The OS doesn't have access to your fingerprint or your face scan or anything like that. Yeah, you know? it's so a, called a trusted platform module. Keep them, keep them separate like that. That enclave. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think this is good news. I, I think this is a, a hopeful sign that we're heading in the right direction with this. I was particularly pleased to see the big names all signed up here. Because, you know, quite often with these sorts of things, you get one or two, and then there's always a holdout. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. You, you, you know, you end up with Blu-ray and HD DVD, yeah, well, and you don't know Facebook which one Facebook on this one and Amazon? I would like to see That's them join That's a good question. It. That's a good question. I don't know. They're not listed here, so uh, I don't know. Come on, Zuck and Bezos. <laughs> get on the bandwagon here. That's right. That's right. I'm sure they listen to this show. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but I just motivated them to participate. Sure. Yeah, Zuckerberg is just sitting by his uh, his mobile device. I every wonder what week, Joe and Dave are going to say. Waiting this week. for hacking humans to drop. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what happens. Right. 
All right. We'll have a link to that uh, press release in the uh, show notes here. That's my story. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from Peter Butler over at CNET. Mm. And he has a story called Zell Scams, How They Work and How to Keep Your Money Safe. Okay. So it starts off with a great piece that answers a question that you and I have pondered on this show before. What is Zelle and how does it work? Well, we know how it works. It's just a peer-to-peer payment thing, very much like uh, Cash App or what's the square? Maybe, uh, Cash App is the square. There's another one out there. PayPal is another one. Yeah. Venmo. That's yeah. the one I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Um, so, but Zelle is actually uh, created by a consortium of major U.S. banks, including Bank of America, Chase Capital One, and Wells Fargo. Yes. And it charges no fees and works with almost 1,500 banks and credit unions. Hmm. So I like the no fee part because there is a pretty significant fee with all the other ones. Okay. So maybe I'm going to start up a, uh, a Zelle. I don't know. Okay. Who knows? I do have Cash App, and I, I can buy Bitcoin with it. All right. Is, uh, I don't know if you can buy that with Zelle, because I am not a Zelle user. But I digress, as I normally do. Uh, So there are a number of scams that have been perpetrated by these. And one is a text message that comes in and says, hey, you've made this large Zelle payment. And then you respond, no, no, that's wrong. Respond, you know, because the text Uh. says respond yes or no. And you go, no. And that immediately validates you to the scammer. And then they call you spoofing the bank's number, right? Uh. And then – or. a bank's number, yeah. hopefully your bank. It's a shot in the dark they're taking, uh-huh. right? And then they essentially try to walk you through getting your money back, but really what they're doing is transferring the money out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Another one is the utility payment scam. Hmm. And this one was recently discussed on a Mets game broadcast between <laughs> what? Keith Hernandez and Gary Cohen. You remember Keith Hernandez? I remember, well, I, I have to admit, I'm not much of a sports ball guy, but, uh, ball. but I do remember Keith Hernandez uh, he made a, uh, an appearance on on Seinfeld at one point. I think he was dating Elaine or something. But so I, I know who he is. <laughs> okay. Well, he was he was a first baseman for the Mets. Okay. For a while. Yeah. So now Keith Hernandez calls for the Mets. Calls games. Yeah, just like Jim Palmer calls right. for the Orioles. Yeah. Right. Okay. I was bemoaning this last night at the uh, Cyberwire event that we attended. That Jim Palmer. Uh, my favorite thing to listen to is Jim Palmer and Gary Thorne call an Orioles game. Oh, okay. I used to love listening to that. Now Gary. Thorne actually also is with the Mets as well. Okay. Um, He's a backup broadcaster. But uh, Keith Hernandez is talking with Gary Cohen about how he got scammed or didn't get scammed. He didn't lose any money, but how he he got hooked with a Zelle scam. Hmm. Well, let's take a listen. Here's here's the uh, so this is a clip from uh, in the midst of calling a baseball game. Right. They had this conversation. All right. Let's check it out. I got an email with the FPL, which is Florida Power and Light logo, that said you are did not pay a down payment of X amount of dollars, and we are going to turn off, we sent a guy out today, if it's not paid within 30 minutes, we're going to set your power down. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And I, and I, I, bit, I bit the hook. You fell for that? And I called the guy. Segura gets in front of McNeil's ground ball. Go on. I, I called I call the number like an idiot, <laughs> and I'm listening to this guy, and then finally I snap. I said, I've been a, I, I go, I know you are a monopoly. Okay, you've had, I've, been, I've been here for 20-something plus years. I pay on time, and you're going to send a guy out and shut my power down in 30 minutes? That is baloney. Can I ask you one question, Keith? <laughs> the guy you got on the phone, was he a Nigerian prince? No, he wasn't. He had a uh, he had a Spanish accent. 
and I just snapped on him. Well, let me ask you a question. In the course of all of this, reading the email, getting a little nervous, calling the number, snapping on the guy, at what point did you realize that this was not actually Florida Power and Light that I'm, threatening to turn off your electricity? I've been a very dependable customer. I said, this is baloney. So uh, I called my, I called my uh, banking institution, and Lillian, my, as, as my representative uh, down in Florida, and she just said, Keith, no, no, no. I had to pay through Zelle, and I never heard of Zelle. And, and it's really almost like Todd Zeal's spelling. Z-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. I go, what's Zeal? Zelle. I go, what the heck is that? you got to be kidding me. Then it kind of sunk in. You know, unfortunately, these kinds of scams often get perpetrated on senior citizens like I yourself. I know. I just don't expect you to be the one to fall for it. All right. Well, good news. Uh, that he didn't. He, he didn't get scammed. Right. But he realized it was a scam, <laughs> right. I guess. But, but, but you know what? He got saved by the person at the bank, right? Well, he, yeah, he called the person at the bank after he was on the uh, got off the phone with the other person. They said, don't worry about it. It was a scam. Right. Uh, but at some point in time, he got suspicious. But what's interesting here is that Gary Cohen goes, you fell for that? Huh. Which is also, you know, I, I think that what Keith Hernandez fell for here is something that's easy to fall for. And, and, and Keith is talking about how they call him in the morning. He's had one cup of coffee. He's mm -hmm. kind of groggy. And they hit him with, hey, your power's about to be cut off in 30 minutes. Right. And that immediately just sends him into a, into a panic. Yeah. Right? He, I mean, he has, to act, he has to, to act now. Right. Right. So he, can, so he can brew that second cup of coffee. But he, he starts— he starts thinking about it and, and, and he gets angry and starts, you know, going, going, I, I guess he channels his inner Joe <laughs> and starts, starts yelling at the guy because this is exactly how I'd handle it. Just, no, I pay my bill every month. Uh -huh. um, but eventually he realizes it's a scam. And I, I think, but, but uh, Gary Cohen's response is also kind of a natural response. It's not a helpful response, but a lot of us say this. I can't believe I fell for that or you fell for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's something we do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, look, we make the point many, many times over and over again here that you should not shame the victim. Correct. Right? So I think hopefully Gary can come away with that lesson. Yes, because <laughs> Gary listens anybody. to the show too. <laughs> well, yes, he does. Gary and Zuck, <laughs> they probably have coffee together. In between innings, they right. they listen to our show a couple minutes at a time. I'm sure that's what happens. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, have have some sympathy here. And look, hey, it can happen to Keith Hernandez. I suspect his bank account probably has a little more in it than yours or mine. I'm I don't sure it know. does. Former major leaguers versus current podcasters I, probably has a, a higher level financial advisor than you or me. Yes. Well, I mean, Dave, <laughs> we are rolling around on all this podcast. Buddy. That's right. Wheelbarrows full of cash. Right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, Peter Butler says, "How has a section here, how can I protect myself from Zell scams? Number mm. one, don't respond to unsolicited text messages and emails. Yeah. Okay. Uh, watch for red flags such as urgent deadlines mm -hmm. or Zelle requests from new recipients. Mm -hmm. um, uh, never give anyone your two-factor authentication code. These are the codes that are sent to you over your, your phone. Right. Uh, this is why I classify this as one of the least secure forms of multi-factor authentication. And I do not say you should not use it if it's the only thing available to you. I'm just saying you should move along the spectrum to the more secure yeah. options. Um Let's see. And the last one here is use Zelle only to transfer money to family members and friends or businesses you know and trust. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, in Hernandez's case, he would have thought this is a business I know and trust, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if that scam had gone through. Now, here's something interesting. 
hmm. in this article. In June 2021, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau clarified its position on banks required compliance with the Electronics Fraud Transfer Act of 1978. Okay. Also known as Regulation E. Okay. And they said that if a third party fraudulently induces a consumer into sharing account access information, that consumer should receive the same protections as if the money were acquired from a stolen debit card or other banking access device, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. So this article correctly points out that normally when you have a, uh, you're the victim of Zell fraud or some kind of peer-to-peer uh, -peer cash uh, or peer-to-peer -peer money sharing app, the banks usually tell you, tough luck, you authorize that transaction. Right. And you have two ways of recourse. One, they say that once the, the media gets a hold of one of these stories, they almost immediately refund the money. Oh. <laughs> right. Which is great. But now you can also go to the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and file a complaint with them. Okay. So you can try to bring the heavy hand of regulation down upon yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how effective that would be. Well, uh, it's worth a shot. It is. But, yeah, it's better than doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we will have a link to that article in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Arius who writes, I've been listening to this show recently and I've discovered, I discovered it in my podcast app. I'm listening from the oldest and working my way up to the latest, a dedicated listener. <laughs> Currently, I'm in the early 2020 shows. Uh, so I have about 1.5 years of show to catch up. So, I mean. Condolences. Yeah. I, I don't know if I could sit down and listen to a year and a half of this show, Dave. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So if this catch of the day makes it to the show, say hello to me. Well, hello, Aries. <laughs> right. So a year and a half I, from now. I will listen to when I get to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So this is a this is a text message exchange that I think Arius got. It's a wrong number scam. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's being perpetrated against him by somebody who is claiming to be a uh, a, a female. Okay. So. Dave, you always do the best breathy female voice. <laughs> okay. So why don't you play the part of the scammer, and I will play the part of Arius. And I right. like Arius's first response. Starts off like this. Hello there. Hello. Identify yourself. I'm Maya. Are you Jason with the wine with us last night? Nice to meet you. I am not, Jason. You might want to check your number. I'm very sorry. Maybe I drank too much last night and saved the wrong number. I hope you don't mind. Ha ha, no worries. Sounds like you had fun. If you can't remember, it didn't happen. You need a do-over. Thank you. You're a kind and friendly person. Have a nice day and a happy family. Thank you. Good luck with finding Jason. Thank you. Acquaintances fate. I'm from Singapore and currently living in Los Angeles. How about you? Strange. I am from Los Angeles and currently living in Singapore. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> We're the opposite, LOL. Small worlds, huh? By the way, you woke me up at 1.30 here in the morning. I do not believe. What part don't you believe? You are not from Los Angeles. Why not? Compton, to be precise. Okay. So what's up? Got a picture of yourself? I mean, if you want to get to know each other, at least I can put a face to your name. Of course. My name is Mia, and I'm 35 years old. How about you? And... 
this person sends a picture of a woman that is probably a model because she is very attractive. Yes. Right? And she does not look like she's 35 years old. No. I uh, half that. Right. <laughs> and this person probably just went out on Google yep. and found uh, a picture of a very attractive woman that looked like she would come from Singapore, and that's what he sent. And Arius sends back this picture of a guy leaning against some equipment like a DJ, mm-hmm. and he says, I am Blake, 38 years old, and I'm a radio DJ. Nice to meet you, Blake. Your work is very cool. You are a gentleman. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, you're a gorgeous lady. Thanks. Are you a radio DJ in Singapore? No, in Los Angeles. I am on vacation right now. What do you do for a living? Wow, that's great. A vacation can relax you and help you. I'm a jewelry designer with my own company, when I'm all bespoke and doing real estate and crypto investments with my aunt. You are an entrepreneur too. I invest in crypto as well. I hate all this up and down stuff. Worse than a roller coaster. I have a few mining rigs for crypto back in LA. My brother is running them right now. Wow, that's so cool. You're a man with a great mind. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Do you have any other chat software besides this one? What's wrong with this one? You can add a contact information to facilitate our conversation. I believe we can also become better friends. What do you think? You need to practice your scamming skills a little bit more. I can tell you're a beginner and you're boring me. Bye. Then I'll lie to your family. Bye. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but he says, uh, I could train you. I have a group of very talented guys who could teach you to do this better if you'd like to work for me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's pretty interesting. This, this is uh, this has a lot of hallmarks. I don't know what the end game is here. Maybe a crypto scam because she mentions crypto or yeah. the scammer mentions well, crypto. And also interesting, she's trying to get him off this platform. Right. That was a yeah. big red flag for me. Yeah. Uh, so good work. Good work on uh, talent. And by the way, who are your guys that you know that can train them better? Is that us? Well, pen testers probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something. Who knows? Who knows? Thanks for sending that in, Aries. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have something we would like to consider for the show, you can email it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Connor. He's the founder of an organization called Conscientious Security. And we spoke about a phishing study that he conducted back when he was still working for F-Secure, another security company. Yep. Here is my conversation with Matthew Connor. When I first joined F-Secure, I found a company that was delivering large-scale phishing simulations to a variety of different, um, different industries that had a lot of data and wasn't really interpreting that data, wasn't really exploring what that might mean. And the sort of academic mind, uh, the back of my head said, we should, we should look for trends here. We should look to big data will, will give us answers that we, we might not have had. We look at phishing emails and we think we know why that works and why it doesn't work. But actually, if we step back and look at a lot of data, we might find, might find things out that we didn't, we didn't know before. So that's, that's what prompted, uh, this. And we, we had some partners and we worked with them. Um, and yeah, then and cracked on making this, making this study. Well, let's go through it together. What was the methodology? How, how did you go about it? We first designed four emails or, or took the skeletons of four emails that we, we've seen very regularly in the wild and that we also know are quite effective. So there are, there are other emails out there that are maybe more common 
but these ones are both they're both seen and they can be quite effective in getting people to click and then producing the damage the consequence that occurs thereafter we then took this out to uh customers of ours and to potential customers and uh, as S secure we explained what we wanted to do and tried to get them on board and as you can imagine there was a lot of legal wrangling in there to try and you know try and take some of this data out to make a large public study because that's really what we wanted we didn't just want to take this information and have it for ourselves and, and use it within F secure we wanted to to try and move the conversation onwards of that little bit in terms of how do we solve this problem of phishing or how do we how do we start to solve that problem a little bit more? Once we'd established our participants, we then found that we had to tweak and change those emails and the ones that we designed had to be kind of redesigned slightly and we, we kind of gave ourselves new barriers and new design kind of design effects for them. We, we were very well versed in producing phishing simulations, so that was all, all all right. And eventually when we had the clients on board, everything signed off, we delivered these emails en masse. So so what we did, it's probably a bit of a preamble, but this is the real crux of the, the study. So we've got four different phishing emails. We had four participating organisations. And um, what we did was take all employee lists for those organisations. We randomised them within the organisation and gave each person at random just one email. We did this so that there would be overall parity. We wouldn't be giving one group one email and then saying, well, this didn't quite work for... It's worked for retail, but would it work the same in banking and finance? So we randomised everyone and drip-fed those emails out over a week. So every every day between, I think it was between 10 and 3 uh, UTC, we, we delivered these emails out slowly. After a week, we left the emails live for another week to catch those people who might have been on annual leave or just busy and hadn't got around to it to see if we'd capture them. At the conclusion then, stripped away all of the, the information relating to those organizations, we anonymized it, and then began to explore that, that data en masse. And that's where we kind of came up with some of the, the results that we found. Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly substantial sample size here. You targeted over 82,000 individuals. As the data started to come in, what was your response here? Were, were there, uh, was it what you expected, or were there some surprises? So the, the simplest response was one... Uh, the simplest uh, uh, way to view the results was what I expected. Because we had the four different emails, we could easily track which of these emails is performing best. I'm saying it performing best positively, but really it's what's more dangerous. <laughs> and yeah, um, and so we weren't surprised at the results there. Uh, the The internal HR mimic email was by far the most effective. All of the emails were completely generic. They had no um, application to the client the the people who we were targeting there we didn't use like a real hr person we didn't try and spoof their domain we didn't try and put a logo in and the same with all of the other emails we didn't use existing companies third parties that we would be using familiarity for so the familiarity was only in the language and the style of the email Hmm. but even with a completely generic email we just called ourselves from hr that still delivered a really really high click rate that wasn't too much of a surprise for us because of all of the emails, this was the one that had real personal impact. The rest, there was a bit of loss aversion. There was some uh, like authority, a bit of urgency perhaps. But this was the one that me as the employee, something might actually change for me here. I might lose some annual leave days. I might just 
have to rebook them. There might be some some genuine effect to me. And so we'd we predicted that this one was going to be the most effective, and indeed it, it very much was. Now, what I would say is because we had to make those emails generic, some of the others performed, I think, p- more poorly than a real world example would. So the document share and the uh, service notification emails, they usually play on the familiarity of the brand. You get a, an email that looks like it's from Microsoft and says, your your system will shut down if you don't click this link or something a bit more, uh, you know, a bit sharper than that. Um, we didn't want to use third parties for a couple of different reasons, but primarily because if one one of our customers, one of our clients used G Suite, well, it's not going to work quite as well for them. And we didn't want to use the same scaffolding and put different facades on it. So we use completely generic. So I do think for a, if there's a real attacker out there, they probably wouldn't use a generic file share. They'd use OneDrive or they'd use SharePoint or something like that. So I think that that would, you would see scarily, you would see the numbers go up even more. Similarly for the internal HR mimic, if we had spoofed the domain a little bit, if I'd found someone from HR and put their their face at the bottom or in, you know, in the little the little bubble that you see on your, your uh, client, that would have been even more effective. So yeah, that was, that was the, that was the primary uh, thing that we were able to track as the, the results were coming in. It really surprised us, but with hindsight, it maybe shouldn't have, was that the parity between those people who have had uh, or who work in information security themselves, those in IT, those in DevOps, those people who understand a lot more about how these computer systems work versus someone from finance or someone from sales who uses these uses information technology but doesn't necessarily need to know how and why it works that they were just as susceptible as everyone else hmm. that was that, that kind of shocked us and that was something that i think that's what really to me challenges the the received wisdom of the whole industry which in summary is knowledge is not enough to prevent phishing attacks knowledge about phishing and about the the techniques that people use and what to look out for it's critical you have to have it but it's not enough and that that really speaks to the experience i've had in my commercial time as well where we would deliver endless amounts of training about look out for this this uh, dodgy sender domain hover your mouse over the the link here look out for spelling mistakes and, and grammatical errors and we trained people over and over and over again with this, and they still fell victim. So clearly, to me, knowledge isn't enough. We need something more. One of the things that you uh, tracked was um, the ability for people to report these emails, and, and that that made a difference as well. Absolutely, yeah. This, this was such a clear finding for me, and it, this, I don't think, challenges the, the wisdom of the industry. I think this really supports... Um, supports the, the strong message that most um, people who work in security are, are purporting at the moment, which is you have to make the reporting process for your, for your staff as simple as possible. The, the people that we, uh, people we tested that had a, a nice neat button, click that and it'll whiz your, whiz your email off for somebody else to, to examine it. They reported emails. One, one organization was close to 50% of those emails got reported. Whereas those people who had to save the email off, attach it as an attachment to another email and forward it onto a, a shared mailbox that they've probably forgotten and have to look up, very few people reported. Where this really showed was one organization had 
a, a couple of groups, not just apartments, but groups of people had a button that they were slowly rolling out and the rest of the business didn't yet. Now, those people who had the, the button reported, again, about 50% of people were reporting this, whereas I think it was about 11% in everyone else. Hmm. So so they, they're the same organization. They're in the same department, maybe in, this, in the same team, but those people who have a button are, I think it's four times more likely to report emails. Wow. To me, it's, that's, a, that's a critical point. Everyone, if you've got employees and they're receiving emails, make sure they've got a really straightforward and simple way to report those emails as, as suspicious. Well, let's go through some of the take-homes here. I mean, based on the information that you gathered, what are your recommendations? Absolutely. So, so that, as I've just finished there, is, is one of my key. It, I think it's one of the, the simpler ones to do and, and honestly one of the more like cost-effective ones mm. to do. Make sure staff have a really simple way to report emails. There are free options out there. Grab one of them, install it in your clients and, and provide that information for your staff. More than that, though, I think if, we re- if you really want to start trying to solve this problem, you really see this as a risk, which I think every business should. If you look at the numbers of, of how much is lost in, in a single year, I, saw, I think it was the FBI said $7 billion was lost, something like that, through, through overall all attacks. But a large portion of those started with phishing attacks. Is Go that extra step in trying to solve this problem for your staff. For me, why doesn't the knowledge prevent people from clicking on clicking on links or opening documents or providing credentials. It's because it, it falls out of their mind. They, they don't recognize it when it's actually happening. I think the, the key element you can do is you can teach them to observe their own behavior. So I could, I could spend a day a week providing you with the latest phishing attacks. And this is what it looks like. And this one's a COVID-19 one. And this one's to do with a Ukraine fundraiser. And they always look, every time they look different, but the skeleton of them is the same. It's always looking for something that you want to get, something that you want to avoid, using some sort of authority or authenticity, using familiarity, and especially with some time urgency. And for me, if you can start to teach your staff to identify when they feel that pull, oh, I've got to do something now. I've got to reply to this. I've got to open that document. As soon as they feel that pull, push. That's my key message. When you feel a pull, push. Take a second, take a breath, start to think about this and go and, go and speak. And, and hopefully you've then got the, the backup, the support within your organization. So somebody can report it, but if they're not quite sure yet, can they, can they share that in a, you know, in a Slack channel or a Teams group? Have they got someone that they can clearly like, find to, to share this with, share a screenshot and say, I've just received this email, what do you think? That kind of cultural support is essential. If you're just doing delivering training that tells people, look out for sender, don't click this, um, you might be meeting regulatory requirements, but you won't be solving the problem. You've got to go that step further. All right, Joe, what do you think? This is an interesting study. Um, I took a look at this study. It's a pretty good study, and I like the way it was set up. Mm-hmm. 82,000 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good, a good, good sample sam- size. Yeah, exactly. Right? And if you look at this with adversarial thinking, Matthew says uh, best, he really means, you know, most dangerous or the worst, as, right. as he says. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, I, I think it's fascinating that the internal HR memo was the most effective. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I'm not surprised by that. 
Uh, but this was a minimal effort, generic template thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you look at the study? No. You know what the effectiveness of this was? Mm-mm. 22%. Wow. 22% of the people that got this email clicked on it. Hmm. That is remarkably high. Yeah. I one think. In, one in five, one in four or five. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if I'm a scammer, that's all I'm sending mm-hmm. is those. Mm-hmm. So now everybody watch out for emails from your HR department. <laughs> they could be from Joe. They could be from me. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I think that using generic templates is good for the study. It gives you a solid baseline. Yeah. Right. But if somebody were to target your company specifically, and he said there's only four organizations that participated in this, which means on average, these people had, or these companies had 20,000 people working for them, mm. which is a good target. Mm-hmm. Right, a good sized target. If I'm going to target twenty thousand people, you can bet I am making these things personalized. Yeah, I'm coming up with. I might even register a domain. I'm going to steal the logos. I'm going to make an HR uh, letter that looks like it's. I'm going to find out who your director of HR is. Right, and if I do that, I guarantee you, I get more than a twenty two percent click rate. Mm-hmm. It also strikes me that a, a company of that, if, if you're in a company that has twenty thousand people. Mm-hmm. Uh, just by necessity, a lot of the communications you get from the company are going to be generic. Yep. Because there's no way they can personalize it for everyone. That's 100% correct. So you're going to be used to Mm -hmm. things being a little sterile, a little clinical. Yes, you are. Yeah, and I think that makes it more likely that you might fall for something. I I think you're right. Yeah. I think that's that's a a good observation. Mm. What else? I think it's interesting that IT, security, and DevOps were just as susceptible as everyone else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not special. No, everybody's human. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the big takeaways from this thing is I have two big takeaways from this interview. Number one, user interface is key when it comes to reporting spam or suspicious emails. Mm-hmm. Right? He says, uh, Matthew's talking about the, the if you can just click a button on an email, that on the email interface, it says, send this off to the spam team. Mm-hmm. That is four times better than having something where you have to save it as an attachment and send it off. Right, right. Um, you know, it's it's. I've done both of those, and I, it's. I'm really unlikely to do it with the uh, with the second one. Just sure. At, I, I do it because I'm diligent, but <laughs> uh, and because but you get blisters on your fingers. But I get blisters from, on yeah, my fingers. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I like what he says here. When you feel a pull, push. Mm, That's a good mm -hmm. way to remember things. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the key things, uh, the other key takeaway from this is that people are going to stop thinking about security stuff when they're far away from the training, right? Mm. That's why your security awareness training needs to be as continuous as possible. Yeah. Right? It's much better to have the short weekly or monthly training event that's, that's, you know, it takes just a couple of minutes than it is to have the annual event yeah. where everybody gets inundated with things. Because, you know, I'll bet if you looked at the chart of of clicking after that event, if you just tracked phishing susceptibility, once you have that event, it goes down for some period of time. Right. Right. Once right. you have that training event. And then it slowly creeps back up. That's a study I'd like to see someone do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So if maybe F-Secure is listening right now, maybe they can do that study next. <laughs> well, they must be listening too because right. everybody does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the numbers coming out of these are, I mean, there's just bananas, right? Bananas. And, and uh, I mean, there are lots of good things about bananas. Bananas are, are tasty. They yeah. are uh, nutritious. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they're they very portable. Yes. They're fairly durable. I'm trying to think of any downsides to bananas. Would, any downsides to bananas, Joe? Banana is not magnetic. Good point. Yep. Good point. 
All right. Well, our thanks to Matthew Connor from Conscientious Security for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.